This podcast was recorded on Friday, March 24th at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Well, first of all, let's step back. So we started, there's a year and a half ago that we started with what we're going to try and achieve. The first thing we did was we reduced taxes on middle-class Canadians. So you said you're married, so um, I don't know what your income is, not asking. Uh, but uh, I'm a journalist, I'm not yeah, super so, rich. So Raj, and this is a special episode of Follow Up, a politics podcast from the Huffington Post Canada. This week, the Liberal government released its second federal budget, among the highlights that got people talking, killing the public transit tax credit, more money for childcare, and deferring military spending. We wanted to connect Canadians with Finance Minister Bill Morneau, not only to talk about the budget, but also about their concerns surrounding jobs, housing, taxes, and more. Minister Morneau joined us for a live digital town hall two days after the budget. Here is a replay of that event hosted by my colleague, Dan Tenser. Lots of great questions from people like you and some pretty interesting answers. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Your Questions with Canada's Finance Minister. I'm Dan Tenser, business editor here at the Huffington Post Canada, along with our guest for this digital town hall, Bill Morneau. Thank you for joining us, Minister. Happy to be here. And thanks to those of you watching on Facebook Live right now. We're going to try to take as many questions as we can, so please send them along and uh, add your comments as well. Video producer Emily Ananuevo will be tracking those comments and jumping in with your thoughts. Thanks so much, Dan. Okay, so we'll be talking about some major issues impacting Canadians right now. Jobs, housing, taxes, banking, and of course, the federal budget. So let's start there. Our first question from Facebook comes from Jason Walters of Toronto, who is also one of your constituents, Minister. He asks, why cut the transit tax credit for average people while letting rich CEOs enjoy an $840 million tax burk on stock options? Okay, well, Jason, um, that's an important question. We last year told Canadians that we wanted to make sure that as we think about uh, growing the economy, we need to make sure that people pay their fair share of taxes, that our tax system works for Canadians. So we set about to look at the, the way that the tax system is structured to make sure that it's, you know, that it's efficient, that it's um, not too complex, and that it's fair. So as we did that, we, we looked at each one of the measures in the tax system to make sure that it's actually having the desired impact. So in particular, the one you're talking about, the public transit uh, tax credit. First of all, tax credits, by their very nature, don't help people who don't pay taxes. So, of course, that's a, a fairly big category of people. But more importantly, there were really two objectives to that uh, public tax credit. And that was, first of all, to increase public transit ridership, and, and second of all, to make sure that we had a reduced environmental impact. Our analysis showed us that it actually wasn't meeting any of those two objectives. So, so what we're thinking about is how do we actually have a bigger and more important impact on public transit? What do we do in order to actually get more people riding, have a more green system, and have a, a better public transit system? So by making a commitment to $20 billion of investment over, over a decade on public transit, which we're going to do together with provinces and, and uh, municipalities who are going to actually put more money into the system, we're actually going to have the biggest, most important impact. The second thing you asked about was uh, really looking at other tax measures that are fairness measures. Well, you know, we looked at where's the place where we really need to make a difference, and we saw that there's a very significant increase in the number of private corporations that people are using for tax planning purposes. So not small businesses that are employing people and growing the economy, but people who are using them in order to, to shield themselves from tax. And we said there's, there's things we need to do there. So, so that's a really important measure that's going to deal with the tax fairness issue. And you know, our ongoing view is that we, we need to make sure that you know, two people that are living side by side have, you know, if they have the same salary, they have roughly the same income after tax. And that, that's important. We are working towards that goal and, and we'll remain focused on tax fairness over time. 
You're talking specifically about the practice that certain doctors or lawyers particularly use, where they incorporate themselves to get a corporate tax rate. Are, are there any specific plans going forward to actually change how that works? Well, I'm not specifically singling out professions. What we're saying is that there are, are people in all walks of life who've uh, set up private corporations, and they might be sprinkling dividends among family members that aren't actually working. Uh, they might be turning uh, investment income into passive uh, investment income inside a corporation so they actually pay less tax there. Or they might be turning regular income into capital gains income. So there's, there's structures people can use that, that create a sense of, of unfairness because everyone can't use them. So it's not about professions. There's, there's good reasons why some professions decide they need to incorporate it. We're not questioning those. It's about the things that people can do inside those right. corporations that may just not be fair. And so we're going after that. There, there's going to be a continuing focus of our government to, to think about not only how do we grow the economy, but how do we make sure that people have confidence that that, that growth benefits them and their families, and not that it disproportionately goes to a very small portion of society. That's, mm -hmm. that's we think, for confidence that we're all in this together, that we're all going to achieve better goals, we all need to see the benefits of growth. Mm -hmm. um, getting back to Jason's point, just Quickly, I think he was also sort of pointing towards the optics of it. Here you have a tax break used by commuters. Here you have a tax break that, uh, you know, most benefits the wealthiest, especially people on executive boards, CEOs, and that kind of thing. One got kept, one got cut. Um, you know, as somebody who actually benefited from the public transit cut personally. Mm -hmm. Explain to me how that benefits me. What, what am I going to get out of this change going forward? Well, first of all, let's step back. So we started, there's a year and a half ago that we started with what we're going to try and achieve. The first thing we did was we reduced taxes on middle class Canadians. So you said you're married. So um, I don't know what your income is. Not asking, uh, but uh, I'm a journalist. I'm not yeah, super so, rich. So, but the the point is, we we reduce taxes. We cut taxes by seven percent in the forty-five thousand to ninety thousand bracket. Uh, if you were single, uh, that would have ended up for you uh, if you were at that that ninety thousand peak, uh, as in being important. And and on average, it was three hundred and thirty dollars. So for a family, on average, it was five hundred and forty dollars. Going a next step for, for families, and we're really trying to think of how to make life more affordable for families, how they can actually see opportunities for themselves and their families. I know you don't have kids, but you might eventually. We changed the Canada Child Benefit so that uh, 9 out of 10 families get more benefits. So the average more is $2,300 more after tax. And for some families, even significantly more than that. So, so you cannot look at any individual measure in isolation. And that's, that's what we're trying to achieve. You, then juxtapose that question with the, the issue around stock options. Well, you know, I'm not arguing in, in favor of, uh, you know, particular people having very high uh, compensation. What I'm saying is we need to think about how we make the system fair and we need to go after the places where we can actually have a big impact on that. We are down that path. We will continue down that path to make sure that we have a fair system. So this bottom line, middle class people are better off after the first two budgets. Well, they, not only that, but now what we need to think about is, in particular for people that are going to try and uh, be successful over time in a dynamic economy where there's exciting jobs, we're going to need to make sure we have an innovative economy, so focus on where we can make investments to be successful. And then think about what sort of training do people need to go from this kind of opportunity, that kind of opportunity. So, so you need to think about the, the tax system. It's important. You also need to think about how do you get great jobs for people? and How do you make the economy grow so that people have more and more opportunities? We're, we're engaged in both those uh, issues. Uh, they're both really, really important and they do go together because we're, you, know, you start by creating the, the confidence and the optimism by saying to people, we're, we're, we're showing there's benefits for you. And they say, we're going to make investments over the long time, and those are going to produce benefits for you as well. Okay, we're getting a lot of Facebook questions coming in, okay. so thank you for that. Um, the first one here is from Justin Rivet in Toronto. He wants to ask you, Minister, what's the point of taxing Uber and scrapping the transit tax? Scrapping. Scrapping, sorry. So, scrapping so, the let's, tax. so let's deal with the first issue. We, I think we talked about the, um, uh, or let's, the he talked about Uber and the, the transit tax. Yes. We talked about the transit tax a bit. I gave some outline of our, our process. Uh, Uber, uh, we're, 
Um, we're not in any way trying to disadvantage people from using Uber. We're just trying to make sure that there's uh, an appropriate uh, payment of uh, GST. That's just the way the system works. So uh, there's a reason for an equal playing field between uh, taxi cabs and Uber. Uh, it's a measure that uh, makes sense because we have a system that has a, a GST. So, so that was a, a relatively um, you know, straightforward thing that, uh, around, around fairness for, for different parts of the economy. So you focused a little bit on the new economy, ride sharing and that kind of thing in this budget, sort of catching up to the reality of these new business models. Uh, does the Uber tax mean we're going to see a Netflix tax coming down the line as well? Well, we decided not to do that. We, we, we did look at the, at the Uber situation and said, you know, there's clearly a, a situation where two cars sitting beside each other, you know, one you get in and if you pay $10, it's $10. One, if you get in, it's $10 plus GST. Uh, right. You know, we just, we said there's just an inherent fairness issue. Um, you know, what I won't do because it's not appropriate for a finance minister, is to speculate about future tax issues that we haven't talked about. What's in the budget is in the budget. Many people here are going to say, well, what about this, and what about that, and what about this other thing? And I will tell you that we will continue to be focused on how we can ensure that the system is efficient, that it's not so complex, and that's fair. But what I can't do is speculate on what we might or might not do in the future. Okay, so it, it hasn't happened, but uh, you're not taking it off the table. I'm just saying that you can speculate all you want. I'm not in the business of speculating on tax. <laughs> okay, fair enough. We have a question coming in from Heather Alford. She wants to know, will employers be required to hold your job for 18 months with the new parental leave policy? The, um, the parental leave policy is really trying to make sure that we, we recognize the, uh, the challenges of two-parent families in uh, dealing with you know, growing a family and, and uh, taking parental leave. It's, it's allowing them to lengthen the period. Um, I uh, have to admit that I'm not up to date enough on our labor conclusions on that particular issue. I believe that the current uh, labor law says it's 12 months, but I wouldn't want to be um, categorical, categorical on that. Uh, we do uh, recognize that average tenure in jobs, of course, is significantly longer than 18 months. Average tenure in jobs in Canada right now is, is nine years. And uh, that means that for the overwhelming majority of people, this is something that will have a really important impact. Okay, so here's uh, one last question for this section. Lee Griffith asks, how can you possibly justify this deficit? You campaigned on small deficits with a balanced budget in 2019. Well. Let's talk about that. We, we ran for office and said that it was important to invest to make sure that we could show benefits for middle class families who were feeling anxious. Uh, we recognized that investing in the economy was, a, was an important thing to do. Uh, what we saw was that the growth rate assumed by the previous government was higher than in fact when we came into office that we saw. So they weren't making the investments required in order to keep the growth rate at the pace that we'd like to have. And so when you, when you lower the growth rate, you have as a mathematical equation an increase in deficits. That's just the way it works. So half of the deficit that was projected in our first year was entirely related to the growth rate. So growth rate goes down, deficit goes up. The other half, a quarter of, of, of the total, was around us saying we're going to invest in families, Canada Child Benefit, lower taxes, uh, help seniors, you know, make some important investments, invest in Indigenous peoples to get them in the workforce. And secondly, in investments. So we're going to invest in infrastructure, things that are actually going to create future productivity and jobs now. So really, we saw the, the growth rate go down, the deficit, therefore, as a result, go up. And when you're not investing and that's what happens, the remedy is make the investments. So fast forward to today, what's happening? Well, our unemployment rate's gone down. So since we came in office, it's gone from 7.1 to 6.6%. Last seven months, we'd have had 250,000 net new jobs in this country. That's better than we've had in a decade. So we're starting to see the benefits of putting that money in people's hands and the benefits of the investments that we're making. We're encouraged to think that that will continue to generate growth that will enable us to have a strong fiscal position. The PBO says that uh, your government has been slow to get that money out the door. Uh, it's been assigned, but projects not, haven't necessarily been started. How much of this uh, 
job boom, if you want to call it that, over the past six months would you take credit for? How much of it is, you know, the, the economic situation improving? We would say that a lot of what we've done has made a really important difference. And, and I'm just going to challenge the numbers on the PBO just for a second so okay. we really have a good sense of it. So first of all, you cut people's taxes, especially middle class Canadians, there's more disposable money in the economy. You change the Canada Child Benefit and you give it to people, you know, I stopped getting it. So, you know, I wasn't in the category where at that time I had two kids under 18 and I stopped getting it, but I wasn't going to be the one that put all that money back in the economy, but someone who was earning less would. So that money goes into the economy. So that's actually having a, a measurable impact. We can see an increase in, in disposable income. So, so yes, that's having an impact on the economy. Then I go further and say, it's certainly true that you can do things right or you can do them fast. And so in infrastructure, we want to make sure that we get the agreements with the provinces and the municipalities, so we're actually doing the projects right. But 1,300 projects have been agreed to with a value of $6 billion. So is it as fast as I might have liked? It's a little bit slower than I might have liked, but are we seeing the impact pretty close to what we expected? We are. So we said that we'd see about 0.5% growth as a result of, of those initiatives, the ones that I started talking about. We, it's more like in around the 0.4 range right now, uh, but the growth is still going to be there, so it's still coming. So when, when we get criticized for uh, not making the investments quickly enough, you know, I listen and I think we have to make sure that we do get at, at it quickly, but I will tell you that we would get criticized a whole lot more if we made the investments too fast and wasted money. So we're not gonna do that. Okay, well if you're just joining us, we are talking with Finance Minister Bill Morneau. Keep sending us your questions on Facebook Live. Coming up, a topic lots of Canadians are worried about. I spent almost like half a year looking for work. And like all my friends who also graduated, it's been a long time. And there's still like a lot of guys who are still looking for work. The job market, um, I really don't know. Well, I'm a contractor and so I suppose right now it's maintaining my job and uh, making sure my contract gets extended. I guess it depends on what industry you're, you're in. I think technology is always improving and that might eliminate some jobs. I have a few friends that are still working part-time. Um, they're struggling to get into, I guess, their field or their career path that they've uh, selected. I think people take health and all these things for granted and they don't realize that, oh, maybe I do need life insurance, maybe I do need all these benefits if something comes up and I feel like they might be missing out without quite knowing it yet, just being so young. Um, so yeah, I think that there's a gap there for part-time workers for sure. So there's been a lot of talk lately about precarious work and the problem of precarious work in Canada. A lot of people uh, find themselves working part-time jobs, contract jobs that may never turn into full-time jobs and that kind of thing. And uh, there's a lot of talk and a lot of concern about uh, the comments you made last fall that Canadians are going to have to get used to job churn. So um, if this is the, uh, the future, if, uh, if we're looking at an economy where we have to retrain and, 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 and uh, change careers frequently and maybe not, not, never quite get the same level of job security we used to have, what does that mean for us? And Emily, what, what, uh, what are Facebook people saying about this? Well, that's exactly what uh, Diane Varga and the BC Okanagan wants to know. Minister, why should Canadians get used to job churn? Well, I really am happy that this question has come up because I want to be uh, really clear that this actually is a really important issue for us. This animates a lot of our discussions. We uh, are digging into understanding the actual trends uh, and the impacts on people. So. Um, what I hope people interpret from my comments is that this is something that the government's focused on. So let me just frame it. Uh, I mentioned a little bit earlier that the average tenure of jobs right now in Canada is nine years. So what's actually happened is it's gone up over the last number of years from seven to nine years. So it's kind of counterintuitive because we think exactly what you said is that people move jobs more often. Well, what's happening is Canadians are getting older, right? The baby boomers are getting older. So those people who are older are staying in jobs longer because they're at a different stage in their career. So when you age adjust it, you find out that the actual tenure hasn't changed much. So it's actually staying at around seven years. But yet, the reality that, that young people see, and you're both younger than me, is that your, your friends are moving jobs more often, I think, than we think that our parents did. And I think that's what we're, what we're seeing is that while it might be staying at seven years, 
it's being uh, a situation where some people are staying for longer and many people are in, in a more challenging situation where they're, they're finding that they're moving more often. Some of those things are really good because people are in a dynamic economy finding great new roles and they're moving from role to role because they really want to find that exciting new job. And sometimes it's not so good. People who like the ones in your clip that are having real challenges. So I just want people, your viewership, to understand this is what we're talking about when we're thinking about how do we make our economy more innovative and more resilient? How do we give better job opportunities, job training for people? It's because of these trends. So in our budget, we identified six sectors where we think that Canada has a comparative advantage. Places where we're already really good, and places where we, we think we can be better. So uh, we identified the digital area. We, we think that we've, we've got real strength there. We identified the agricultural area across the country. We identified natural resources and clean technology. We identified the health and biosciences. You know, we've got great strengths in that area. And we identified advanced manufacturing. Places where we think that there are going to be big opportunities because of global trends, because of local trends. Places where we think Canada can do well. And, and then we have to think about, so how do we get more people into those roles? Both people who are in education and getting in there and people who are maybe transitioning. So we're thinking about more co-op positions. We've got funding in the budget for many more co-ops at colleges and universities. That's really important. We're thinking about you know, the training that can bridge people from one to the other if they're actually in the employment insurance system. We've, we've increased that amount of, of training. So it'll be for many people an ability to get into those jobs in the future. It even starts back in school. We've, we've put in you know, some initiatives in order to help kids learn code. You know, so we're, we're thinking in the long term. And then for people who maybe they don't want to transition those kind of jobs or they're not realistic for them, we want to help them with more training so that we can bridge them from one place to the other. It, it's, it's exciting when you can see these sort of opportunities, but it's also daunting. And we want to you know, find a bridge to the exciting roles and find a bridge to, to the, the place where it's going to make most sense for people. That's where we see our role. One of the people in the clip mentioned the supports that people have. They, you know, the benefit plans, the, um, you know, the things that people had, and many people still do, of course, in full-time work. Well, we're trying to get at that too. So when we go out and enhance the Canada Pension Plan together with the provinces, and that was one of the big things I was involved with early on, it's recognizing that if people are moving from one exciting opportunity or one challenging opportunity and they don't save as much, that we need to find a way to, to help over the long term. So, so we're thinking about that too. So, so this is part of a broader dialogue. It's a really important one. I felt like the reporting last year focused on the negative and not the fact that as a government we need to, we need to think about global trends, we need to think about automation, we need to think about creating opportunities and, and being forthright in dealing with those challenges when we see them. I just wanted to uh, squeeze in a comment and question here from our viewers. So the comment from Rowena Atkins, she says, I can't even dream of getting to middle class thanks to student loans. So this budget, budget does nothing for many young Canadians. That's her sentiment. And uh, we have a question here from Sean Henley from London, Ontario. Um, what are you planning to do to help people over 55 who cannot get a job and do not qualify for EI or welfare? Who, have, who has another 10 years to go um, for any hope of a small pension? So I don't know if you want to just um, refer to, back to Rowena's comment. Okay, about, well, so um, there are two yeah. kind of different questions, but I think you know, really both important. So in the first one for Rowena, we actually made some pretty big initiatives last year around uh, enabling students to be more successful and not have as much debt. We increased student grants by 50%. So that was for low-income families, for middle-income families, very significant. So we raised them by up to $1,000 a year on grants. We've also raised this year some uh, ability for people to get it when they're in the part-time situation, which we know, you know, it's not just people who are working part-time and you know have a lot of money. They might be working part-time just to get by. So we've we've raised student grants. We also put in place um, a rule where people didn't need to pay back their loans or pay interest on those loans until they hit $25,000 of income. So for the people that are maybe doing a first job that's that's not that lucrative, that they're not burdened with paying back their debt. So you know we're doing our best to solve for these challenges. Of course, 
education is a provincial jurisdiction, but federally we have some things in our control and we're, we're taking action. For the, for the person who's 55, who's looking for the next job, who um, is worried about you know, the next 10 years, what we, what we know we need to do is to think about how can we best satisfy that challenge. Uh, we've said that we're putting more money in the employment insurance system so they can get training through that system. Mm -hmm. We're also looking at how we can increase the amount of training that we're doing together with the provinces for people as they're trying to find that next role that's, that's not through the EI system. Uh, I will acknowledge that it's, that it's a challenge and that, that people in that situation are, are looking for uh, an opportunity to find a way to get the next role. We're trying to play that role and, and do our best in that regard. And as I said earlier, we're trying to make sure that they have some confidence that as they keep working that they'll have a more secure retirement system either through the CPP or we also increase the guaranteed income supplement for the most vulnerable seniors. So we, we won't be able to do everything, but we're certainly working hard to provide the opportunity for people to be successful. You focus a lot on, I guess you could call it the supply side of the labor market in this budget in, in the sense of uh, getting people's skills up to, uh, up to speed, uh, helping people connect with the, the employment community, getting from education to jobs and so forth. Uh, what can you do on the other side of the equation about the actual quality of jobs that we have in this country? For example, a lot of the big bank economists have come out in recent months uh, with reports complaining about job quality, how the, the number, the uh, part-time jobs in Canada are being created at a disproportionate pace relative to full-time jobs. They see this as a, a negative trend and, and also the jobs that have been, there have been far more jobs created below the median wage than above the median wage. Mm -hmm. And so the economists are looking at that and saying, well, this looks like we have a job quality problem. Well, I think, I think uh, let's parse the question first. Um, What's happened the last seven months? We've had 250,000 net new jobs in this country. The majority of them have been full-time jobs. So, so it, it's important when you parse the numbers to actually look what's happening. So I won't say that's always necessarily going to be the case, but that's been the experience. So that's what's happening. It's, it's, we've had good situation in that regard. Uh, but on just the... To, just to mention, we, we had two really strong months and if you pull back to the data before December and January, it was actually something like four to one, four times as many part-time jobs created as full-time. Maybe that trends over, maybe we don't have to worry about that, but more generally, what can we do to sort of improve the quality well, of the jobs? Well, I'm created? not trying to pick and choose statistics, but I know for sure if it had been different and really bad, you would be using those statistics to tell me that things are going poorly. I will tell you that things have been trending to the positive. So. You know, we can, we can debate the numbers, but they have been trending to the positive. You're right, we need to think about the demand side of the equation too, and that's, that's actually really fundamental to this budget. So what we've done is we've, as I said, we're, we're focusing on some sectors where we have a comparative advantage as a country. We're trying to make sure that we create sort of clusters of, of successful universities and research institutes and firms that are working together so that we can actually have, uh, have more success in doing that. We're also thinking about what makes uh, organization successful. So we, we know that uh, venture capital is really important for firms. So we, we put uh, another $400 million uh, funding into venture capital through the Business Development Bank of Canada because we know that's important. We actually said women aren't getting as much venture capital funding so we put in uh, a portion that was just for women because we needed to make sure that we had additional funding to, to make sure women entrepreneurs were going to be successful. Then we said government can't do everything. So over the last six months I've been working together with private sector banks in order to uh, see if there's a possibility for them to actually support second stage companies. And they came out two weeks ago with the Canada Business Growth Fund, which is a $500 million fund intended to help second stage companies to get the leg up so they don't sell to the United States, move the headquarters away so that uh, entrepreneurs don't find themselves in a situation where they have to sell control, which you know, it, it creates less likely for those really good jobs. Right. So it we is want about head office jobs. We'd love that. And so by focusing on where are the places we can win, by saying what are the ways we need to help firms to win, we're creating that demand side for the jobs. And then we do need to think about the supply side. So so thinking about how kids learn code, thinking about more co-op programs, thinking about a training when you get in. These are really important for uh, getting those people into those exciting roles. 
we, we owe it to uh, the next generation to find those dynamic opportunities. You know, otherwise we'll be, we'll be left just, you know, doing the jobs that, uh, that aren't as exciting. And, and th this way it, it drags everything forward. So if we can drag, drag the economy forward, then, then it, helps, it helps everyone. It helps, you know, people in all jobs be more successful. I just want to squeeze in one last question um, just for this section because we're running a bit out of time. Patricia Schwartz from Manitowoc, Ontario wants to ask, as jobs become, become more redundant and people continue to transition from job to job, would you consider minimum income? Or a basic income, as some call it. A, a basic guaranteed income is, mm -hmm. is what people talk about. Well, we, uh, you know, we are, are looking at how we can uh, encourage people to be engaged in the workforce. We, of course, need to think what happens as people transition. By making more training dollars available through the employment insurance system, we're, we're helping in that transition. Uh, we, we, we aren't right now looking at a guaranteed annual income. Uh, we think that the, the current system of um, you know, providing people with the support that they require as they you know, go off on maternity leave, as we talked about, or paternity leave, uh, helping people with the, uh, the transitional support that they need as they go from place to place, giving real training, allows people to get more and more success. I think that, that that will be our, our, our goal in doing that. And as I mentioned before, we are seeing a decline in unemployment. That, uh, that is something we're, we're working towards by creating great jobs. It's always important to consider uh, innovative policy ideas. Uh, it's just not something we're looking at right now because we have many other initiatives that we think will make an impact. Okay, fair enough. So if you're just tuning in, Finance Minister Bill Morneau is here taking your questions through Facebook Live. Up next, something people in Toronto and Vancouver might be especially interested in. Probably that it's overheated, that too many people are buying houses they can't afford. As like a younger person working um, and seeing just like relatives, friends that are like buying homes for the first time, it kind of scares me. I, I think the bubble will burst and I think it's unrealistic. But truly, what it's really doing is dividing Canadians, right? And it's making Canadians move somewhere else. We sold our house about uh, six or eight years ago, and we rent because I just don't think the the prices uh, justify are justified by the value in the home. And I would uh, probably like to see um, a little bit more tightening on lending rules so that people don't get in over their head on purchases. Welcome back. I'm Dan Tenser, business editor for HuffPost Canada, along with video producer Emily Ananuevo and guest finance minister Bill Murnau. So if you've been living in a cave, you may have missed all the talk about housing in Canada. Real estate prices, especially in Toronto and Vancouver, have gone insane and show no signs of coming down. Just like jobs, we're getting lots of questions for the finance minister about housing. Emily? Hey, any co from Vancouver wants to know, most of the houses have been sold with foreign money. Are you working for the interest of Canadians or foreigners? Well, I, uh, I want to make sure that we have uh, a framework that allows us to make decisions with good information. And so I, I want to talk about that uh, premise. But I want to start by saying this has been an issue that we've looked at from day one as we've come into office. We recognize that our housing market's complex. We're talking about Toronto and Vancouver, but there's a whole lot of other places in Canada. So it's not all the same. The Toronto and Vancouver markets, yes, are experiencing uh, high rates of, of uh, increase in, in uh, housing activity, and house prices have been going up at, mm -hmm. at, a, uh, at a pace that's uh, significant. Other places have not experienced the same thing. So we have many other markets that are flat. We've got, uh, you know, just a couple markets that are actually going through challenges like Calgary, for example, or in St. John's, Newfoundland. So the federal government has national tools to deal with these issues. One of the gentlemen in your clip talked about uh, mortgage rules. Those actually are in our control. So at the very beginning, we started off by saying we are going to increase down payments required on houses between 500000 and a million dollars, the portion in that, in that tranche. We did that in order to cool off that housing market. Then we said more recently that we need to look at whether people are potentially taking mortgages that are going to 
present challenges if interest rates go up. So we introduced a stress test on mortgages. And that uh, really puts it in a situation where people aren't gonna take mortgages that are too big for their situation and find themselves in trouble if rates go up. So that's important. We're also looking at the risk in the mortgage market between the mortgage providers and the federal government. These are measures in the federal government control. We are going to keep working on those measures broadly. What we don't want to do is do things that might uh, cause real problems in Moncton or in Winnipeg because we're focused just on one market in the country. We, we can't do that. So we've set apart, uh, set upon a group, Ontario and BC officials, Vancouver and Toronto officials, together with federal government officials, to look at the tools at different levels of government for helping in the housing market. So, you know, the supply issues, you know, the zoning issues, the densification issues, those are not federal government jurisdiction rules. Uh, the, uh, the implication of the young woman or the person who asked that question was that, uh, you know, uh, property tax rules for speculators, that's not a federal government tool. So what, what we are doing is, is taking a look together at things that can make a difference. And then we're also saying, let's make sure we have the data. So the premise of the question was, we know that this is the group that's actually driving housing prices. Well, let's be clear that's true. So we've, we've, uh, we've put money into the framework so that we can actually get the statistics we know, get the understanding we know to make decisions that, that make a difference. I just want to add to that because, uh, as you can imagine, we're getting lots of questions about um, foreign ownership. So, in general, do you plan to bring in rules on foreign home buyers like Australia does? Well, again, um, as I mentioned early on in our conversation with Dan, I don't talk about things that we may or may not do in the future. What I can tell you is that we are having discussions with Ontario and BC and Vancouver and Toronto, looking at things to make sure the market stays stable. We as a federal government don't have any things under consideration moving forward right at this time. We're going to remain focused on this market. We're going to make sure we have the information required to uh, fully understand what, um, what, we, uh, what we should do to keep the market stable. Um, and and that, that will be an ongoing effort. People expect us to stay on top of this. We have been from day one. The government of Ontario <clears throat> not long ago actually called, <clears throat> pardon me, called for uh, an increase in the capital gains tax uh, on non-primary residences, essentially uh, investment properties. Uh, they, they called for that capital gains tax to be raised. They're seeing a problem, presumably they're seeing a problem with speculators. There was a study done uh, just that came out just this week showing that, uh, or estimating that about three in ten homes in Toronto are being bought by speculators or investors. Um, and uh, that this is driving up house prices, you know, sort of more demand than anybody had anticipated. Um, there were no there were no increases or changes to capital gains taxes in this budget. Is that something you would consider in the future? So you're asking me again to speculate on taxes? Yes, that's right. Yes. Okay, so for clarity, <laughs> I'm not going to. Okay. What I can say is that measures like that proposed by Ontario would impact the whole country. So. Again, uh, when, when uh, someone suggests you do something for one market that impacts the whole country, you, we have a responsibility to consider the entire country. So as we think about uh, issues in different uh, places in the country, we need to think about how we work together with different levels of government. So I'm not advocating for what uh, Ontario or, or uh, Toronto should do. I'm certainly not advocating publicly. And what we need to do is remain focused on how we can ensure that the market stays stable. We have taken some actions that are having some impact. We are looking at the, uh, the risk in the market so that we can make sure that pricing of uh, mortgages is uh, appropriately done. We'll continue with those initiatives. I expect that our uh, continued discussions with Ontario and Toronto and Vancouver and BC uh, will be ones where we'll, we'll seek to understand tools that, that all of us have which doesn't lead me to a conclusion that we necessarily are going to do something. It just says that that's important for us to stay vigilant in, um, in making sure that the market is uh, effective for people who own, you know, who have most of their assets in their home. And do you agree with the Bank of Montreal and I think it was TD Bank that also came out and said there's a bubble in Toronto? Is this a bubble? Well, we, uh, we, we remain focused on looking at the market to, uh, to ensure that we, we understand the dynamics. There are, um, 
many dynamics that are driving the markets. It's not a coincidence that the places where you're seeing the uh, most activity also happen to be places where we have really good employment trends, where we have uh, more high earners, uh, where we have more um, uh, you know, lucrative job opportunities. So that's not a surprise, and, and those are driving things. It's not a surprise that in a low interest rate environment, uh, people are willing to pay more for a home. So none of these are surprises. Uh, we will stay focused on, on it to make sure that we're taking the appropriate action if necessary. Here's one last uh, Facebook question for this segment. Sheldon Brow from Halifax. With 60% of Canadians retiring in debt and continual rollout of new regulations on what people can afford on housing and mortgages, a necessity, why is there little to no regulation on affordable vehicles? I think that the question is talking about the, uh, the, the, the explosion of auto debt in recent years. There's been a lot more uh, money being borrowed in Canada. The, the result has been record auto sales, but some economists have come out and said, you know, we think there's an auto loan bubble in Canada. There's too much money. Some of these car loans they're handing out now are for seven-year terms. I mean, the car might not last seven years, but you're paying the, the car off for seven years. Is there anything uh, that could be done about that debt on top of all the other debt Canadians already have? Well, I appreciate you um, <laughs> helping with the question. I, uh, I'm here to translate. I, I, think, I think it's it's uh, uh, it's it's a fair point that uh, household indebtedness has gone up in our country. Uh, household net assets have also gone up in our country, as you know. So the net size of the assets gone up. Uh, the federal government has some measures that make sense for us to consider as we're looking at the um, the assets that Canadian holds. Mm -hmm. It's, it's primarily in the housing market because we require mortgage insurance. And that's actually the, um, the situation that allows us to say, in order to get that mortgage insurance, you need to have a certain amount of down payment. You know, you need to have uh, pass a certain stress test. So, so we're not in the business of controlling what you go out and buy tonight. If you decide to splurge on a great dinner with your wife, that's your business. Uh, we're not, that's, that's, that's not something that the federal government's going to get into the business of doing. And so we need to be careful about asking us to take control over people's day-to-day uh, -day spending decisions. In the housing market, the reason that there's some federal government um, mechanisms is because we are uh, the, um, the funder of the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, which, which actually takes on the risk in the housing market. And uh, or a significant portion of that risk. So we we have a reason to protect you and you uh, from challenges in the market because you're citizens. And if if there's a challenge in the market, then eventually we we basically have a situation where, the, the, where the yeah people have a have a are on the hook. Uh, all people, not taxpayers. I mean, I, I would I would just point out that we're all in this together. So so we want to make sure that that we have some ability to to protect people both in their housing purchase and more broadly and that gets at a big part of this issue so so lest we ask for more of a nanny state on other issues the housing issue is is in most situations the biggest asset that people have so so there is an element of of trying to help people with making good decisions that's why stress tests on mortgages People, people that way can can see that okay. Well, if I if I'm at the right uh, level of mortgage, then I've got some some comfort if if rates change a little bit. That's important. Some organizations, I think even the IMF, have come out and said that the CMHC creates moral hazard. It allows banks to essentially offload the risk of lending to home buyers to taxpayers, and that uh, that the CMHC itself should be either scaled back or eliminated entirely. What do you think of that idea? Well, what I think of the issue is that uh, it is important to consider the, the risks in that sector of the economy, and that's what we're doing right now. So we actually have a consultation paper out to think about uh, the risks and the, the, you know, how much of, and gets relatively uh, technical, but how much people can securitize their loan book and use that as a funding vehicle for their uh, mortgage uh, book. So we're looking at that right now and we're seeking uh, consultations in order to make sure that we properly 
determine where the risk should lie in the market and that, that mortgages are priced with the adequate risk priced in. Fair enough. So some great questions here today and a very good discussion with the finance minister, Bill Morneau. Coming up, taxes, banking, and other really sexy stuff. We do have to pay taxes and there's, we're probably paying the right amount as a total. I'd like to see tweaking how things are done, ways that we can better support certain families. When we file our T4s, let us choose what percentage of our income tax we want to go towards which public services. The Liberals have, uh, have uh, raised the uh, upper end of the tax uh, column and I think that's a good idea. I'm happy with the support the government provides me and I recognize I have to pay for that. So knowing what the alternatives are, I think I'm happy to pay what I pay. I don't necessarily think we need to pay more. I just think we need to evaluate where we're actually spending our money. It's the ultimate of capitalism, right? You let the people choose where their money is spent. And so why not just let the voters or taxpayers choose where their money is spent? Well, they do. They vote for us. <laughs> or not. Taxes. We don't like paying them, but let's face it, we need them. Or, well, at least some of them. Emily, what's the first question we have for Finance Minister Bill Morneau on the issue of taxes? Well, Brent Williams from Oshawa, Ontario wants to know, how much tax revenue do you predict the legalization of cannabis to bring in per annum? We have not done analysis on that issue, and um, we uh, are not seeking the uh, consideration of how we can change the cannabis market as a revenue tool. That's not our objective. I just want to be clear on that. What we're trying to do with this initiative is to make sure that we have a market that protects kids, so one that makes sure that it's regulated and uh, makes it such that we know uh, how uh, people actually can get marijuana and we don't allow people who shouldn't be getting it to get it, and that we get the, the criminal faction out of uh, the cannabis market. So, so regulating it, uh, finding a way to protect it from getting into uh, what we think are the wrong hands is important, making sure that people aren't buying it from criminals and creating a, a criminal market is important. From a, a taxation standpoint, it's a longer term issue. It's, it's a subsidiary issue that we'll have to um, have a point of view on, but it's not the primary focus by any stretch of the imagination. So, um, in other words, I know you don't like to talk about your future plans, but can we expect that in next year's budget, the issue of marijuana in terms of the finances will be addressed in some way? Well, we are uh, moving forward with the, uh, with the regulation and control of cannabis. That's uh, on our agenda. We will need to consider pricing issues because pricing issues will be important. We will be seeking in that as a primary objective to make sure that we get criminals out of the market. And so that is a, as you think about pricing, you need to make sure that you've done something in a way that gets criminals out. So that'll be very important. I think that the, the revenue issues are a relatively small feature of the challenge. And as I said, uh, far down the list. And things Any things. personal preferences where that money would go? Anti-drug, law enforcement, general revenue? I just haven't thought about it enough because there's other issues that are much more important to consider. How we, get the, how we get the criminals out of the market, how we protect young people, these are like first order issues. And this is, this is fairly far down okay, the list. We have a question coming in from Red Ferroni. During the 2015 election campaign, Justin Trudeau promised to reinstate lifelong disability pensions for our disabled veterans. Why wasn't this in the budget? This is a very important issue. We know that taking care of, of veterans is, is really important. This is also complex. We want to get it right. What we did in our first year in office is we made some important uh, decisions that are helping veterans to get the services they need. We increased uh, services, we increased the number of offices where veterans can get support. This is really important. In this budget we said we're, we're trying to help veterans with post-traumatic stress syndrome. We're uh, focused on how we can have veterans get training so they can get into roles. And we committed that we are moving forward on this issue around lifelong pensions. But we haven't got the policy quite right yet and we're not going to do it until we know that we've, we've made the decision that's going to make the most sense for veterans going forward. 
it's something we're committing to. We've not taken it off the list of things to do. It's just going to be done right, and it will be coming out, I hope, in the, in the course of the next year. All right. Well, we are going to have to wrap it up there for now. Thank you very much well, for your actually, time. We don't want to let you go until we ask um, a question. I know you had one oh, prepared yes, for. Oh, yes. We had a nice wrap-up question wrap -up we wanted question. to do. That's right. Yes. <laughs> Minister Morneau, do you have a secret budget or a secret plan in your back pocket to deal with a Donald Trump-related emergency? No, that's not the way the budgeting process works. What have we done? We've taken a look at the forecasts for uh, the economy, and we, we use a, a consensus estimate from The Economist as our baseline projection. We've uh, thought about where the things uh, that are really important for middle-class families, and I've talked about some of them here today, you know, tax cuts, uh, increased child benefits that create confidence. How do we focus on the sectors of the economy that matter to us, that we can really do well on, and get people training for that? All these things are about making our economy stronger, making us more resilient, no matter what the next challenge is around the corner. So we don't know what the next challenge is around the corner. That, that we can all agree on. We know there will be one. So having a stronger economy, better jobs, a better outlook is going to be positive. In the meantime, we will engage with our American friends. I've been in the United States three times over the last few weeks. I'll be back again next week. I was with my uh, colleague or my, my counterpart, uh, Stephen Mnuchin, in Baden-Baden this past weekend in Germany. I was with him the week before that. We are going to engage to understand their initiatives. That's important. Our focus is on how can we make our economy stronger? How can we help Canadians have great jobs for today and for tomorrow so that we'll be resilient irrespective of what happens? Okay, well, uh, I think we really are going to have to wrap it up this time. <laughs> thank you very much. So thank you for joining us, thank Minister. And uh, thank you to all our viewers out in Facebook land for sending your questions and responding. Um, and, and yeah, thanks to all of you for watching and participating in our digital town hall. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out HuffPost's Canada Business for all your financial stories you need to know. You've been listening to a Huffington Post Digital Town Hall with Canada's Finance Minister, Bill Morneau, recorded on Friday, March 24th. My colleagues, business editor Dan Tenser and video producer Emily Anonuevo hosted the minister in our Toronto studio and took questions from Canadians through Facebook Live. Thanks for listening to this special edition of Follow Up. I'm Althea Raj. I'll see you next week when our regular podcast returns.